today's episode of Network, I'm interviewing our WIMSA chairperson, Petra Dupasani, who has recently completed her executive MBA at UCT, and she's going to talk to us about her research, which was on eliminating fatalities in the mining industry. I'm Bryony Lieber. Petra, welcome. Thanks, Bryony. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here. It's been interesting watching you over the last two years doing your studies simultaneously with working in quite a serious position. Um, so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you've been studying, and kick us off with a bit of an introduction. So currently I'm the head of business improvement for Anglo-American Platinum, and that entails not only business improvement, but also looking at innovation and the application of technology in our business. And I'm also the chairperson for Women in Mining South Africa, and I have been that since last year, and this year is my last year for that. Yeah, so that's a lot of roles that you've been playing simultaneously. So with all of those things going on, tell me a little bit about why you chose to study at uh, UCT and what it was that you chose to study? So I did a, for the last two years, I've been doing an executive MBA. When I finished my master's in 2008, I decided I was never going to study again. <laughs> we I, all say that, don't we? <laughs> yes. I was like, that's it. I'm clever enough. No more studying. And then roughly two and a half years ago, one of my friends, she's also a patron for Women in Mining South Africa, she told me about this program at UCT. And the way she described it was, it sounded really interesting and something that I would like to do. And I thought, let me investigate it. Let's have a look at what they're offering in, in the executive MBA. And you know, firstly, what's the difference between an MBA and an executive MBA? So when mm. you do an MBA, it's normally a bit of a younger crowd, sort of in your mid-30s, you'll decide to do an MBA. And it's much more around finding your feet in the corporate world, you know, how to be in a corporate and it's all about marketing and finance and, and all those sort of things. But an executive MBA is normally older people, sort of in their early 40s. And it's more mature. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> and it's not so much about, you know, trying to find your way in the corporate world. It's more around how you, as part of the corporate environment or entrepreneurial environment or wherever you are, how you fit into the world. You know, so how does your company or your business or yourself interact with the world, the complex world out there? And it's much more focused on stuff like systemic thinking and corporate social responsibility, that sort of thing. You know, so that sounded really interesting to me. And where I was in my career at that point in time, I thought that would be a good thing for me to do. So I said, yeah, I think I'll investigate it. And she said, just sign up, you know, just sign up for it, apply for it. Just do it. And I was, you know, I had all these ex excuses. You no, know, it's going to be, I don't know, it's not, not, not right now, um, but maybe next year I'll look at it. And she said, no, you know, just apply. And if you get in, in two years, you'll have an EMBA. And so I did. I applied. And now it's two and a half years later and I've completed all my studies. So it was very good advice that I got from her. Um, it really was. And it? I also decided, I decided to study through UCT because they had the best ranked EMBA in Africa. And Africa is my home. And I, I don't want to solve problems in Africa, mm. you know, so that's why I decided to study through UCT and not another international university. Fantastic. So how has this EMBA been helpful to you over the last two years? Well, it's definitely opened my eyes to a lot of other worlds out there and horizons. I was the only person in this group um, that was studying mining or was from the mining industry. 
Everybody else was from banking or from insurance or from uh, telecommunications or, or other industries. So I, firstly, I learned a lot about other industries. Mm-hmm. The course content focuses a lot on stuff like systemicness and complexity and understanding complexity and new business models and those sort of things. But I think what I found most useful was that you do a lot of introspection, um, a lot of focus on mindfulness, understanding your impact on other people and how to lead. And so we did a lot of reflective type papers mm. just to understand, truly understand your own values and what drives you to perform or to become a better leader. And we did this whole thing, which is called the Phronesis Development Plan, which is um, built on the learnings of Aristotle around how to develop a virtuous leadership practice. And for me, I think that was the most powerful journey that I went on on the last two years. So picking up on leadership, your research topic focused on leadership in relation to safety in the mining industry. Can you elaborate a little bit more on why you chose this topic and specifically what the title of your research was? So when I was thinking about, because for the first 18 months, you, you do courses, you do, um, there's four, four or five courses beforehand. And then the last part of the research is your research project or like a mini dissertation. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to write about, there was sort of three topics that I were con- was considering. Um, we did a, quite a lot of work on strategy as practice and leadership as practice, like in the moment type leadership, how to behave in the moment. And because I'm quite passionate about change management, and I've done quite a lot of work on that in, in the past, I, I first thought maybe I should do a dissertation on change management as practice. You know, how do you do change in the moment mm. and and reinforce change and, and make it happen? So I thought that might be a good topic. And then I thought maybe I should do something about women in mining. Um, just being part of the women in mining community in South Africa, mm. I thought maybe I should think about – because we've got these very um, aggressive targets for in the mining charter for to get more women into leadership positions, mm. I thought I, maybe I should do some research on that. You know, maybe I should look at how do we build a, a pipeline of women and think think about succession and and bringing a lot of competent women into the mining industry and build that up. So I thought maybe I can work on that. But then I thought back to when I was part of the elimination of fatalities task force in Anglo American. Um, which was in 2018 and 2019. And it was all about speaking to people at the coal face, so to say, mm. you know, and really people working in the front lines and listening to them about how we could eliminate fatalities in the mining industry or in their specific workplaces. And those two years changed my life. I changed my whole outlook on the work that I was doing on really speaking to people at the front line and listening to them. And also after, over the last 18 months, the EMBA changed my life. It was um, really mind-blowing, um, the things that we did or learned about and the people that I met as part of the EMBA. So I thought that was quite a nice intersection. Let's, let's use the EMBA, mm. all the stuff that I've learned in the EMBA, and apply that to um, eliminating fatalities in the South African mining industry. So my primary research question that I looked at was – What is the role of leadership in creating an environment and culture which prevents fatalities in the mining industry? So I wanted to look at that. Um, So, And I had quite a lot of material already from being part of the task force Mm -hmm. around listening to people, but I thought I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into that topic. Sounds like a very useful topic for everybody to get to grips with. 
I would imagine that the answers you got from people at the coalface were quite different to the answers that you got from leadership when you were doing your work in 2018, 2019. What were the sorts of differences that you heard? I think there's sometimes a disconnect between what people are experiencing at the coalface or as an operator or as an artisan to what is perceived by management or leadership. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, a huge gap between what we think is happening and what is actually happening. And it was interesting to go through that process. Um, but at the same time, what was really amazing after we went through all of the work and, and presented all of this work to our leadership is they actually listened. Mm -hmm. They actually listened to it and made, made a difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there was a big gap. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from just listening to people. Mm. And that seemed to be a starting premise in your research was that leaders or everybody needs to listen and that we probably don't listen enough. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the key outcomes from the research was actually about listening and turning listening into action. Mm. So, and that's also linked to really caring about people because you can listen to people and do nothing mm. with the information. But if you truly care about people, you will listen to them and you will turn what they've told you into action mm. and into actually workable things that can change the environment. All right. So, uh, before you started your research, this had obviously come from some of the work that you'd been doing, but what did you think you knew? before you started your research? And what do you know now as a result of your research? Yeah, so let's start with what I thought I knew about it. As part of the Elimination of Fatalities Task Force, we looked at the causation for fatalities. So what leads to fatalities? What is the sort of root causes of why fatalities are still happening? So we did a, a lot of interviews with with people, mostly without their supervisors, people actually working as rockdoll operators, as artisans, driving trains and locos, um, the people that are really at the front of the, of the workforce. And we realized that there were a number of reasons why people would take, take risks. And the, the biggest one of them, or the biggest three of them probably, was that risks are often overlooked. We don't understand the actual impact that they, and also that they're, they're underestimated. So we don't know exactly what the impact's going to be if that risk comes true. Um, and, but the biggest one that I found was that people tolerated um, risk, walk past a risky um, situation without doing anything about it. Thinking because we become blind to it. You become blind to it, but also you think it's somebody else's problem. Okay. Um, so, so that was sort of one of the, the key things that came out of the, the elimination of fatalities work that we did. And then I went into the history of South Africa and I looked at, I did a bit of a literature study and I, I looked at our history as a country and as companies that have been working in this country around our attitude towards the workforce mm. and um, accidents and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, if you go back into history, we've had our fair share of mine disasters in South Africa. There's been some big ones. If you think of uh, Mary, Spra Mary Sprites and Clue of Three and all the, and those sort of things. Mm. And I think the biggest change that I saw, I mean, our fatalities have steadily been coming down, you know, from the 1980s to, to last year. It's still, still too many, but it is steadily coming down and it's majorly as a result of, um, leadership changing their attitudes towards the workforce. 
and also um, technology and um, mechanization and those sort of things are also playing playing a role. Just the adoption of technology does make a difference to to creating a safer workplace for our employees. In that it takes people out of dangerous situations? Or yeah, I mean, some way? technology will take you away from a dangerous situation, but also we've become much more attuned to listening to people when they say that the situation is dangerous and actually going, okay, well, let's make it safe. Mm. And there's much more practices, you know, formal practices and standard operating procedures about how to make a workplace safe. And of course, there's the, the mining and mineral laws that say you have the right to refuse to work mm. in an unsafe place. All those things have come into play. So there's been definitely an improvement in our fatality numbers and our inju- injury numbers. But uh, if you just look at the history over the last couple of years, we've come down over the last couple of years from about 80 to 90 to last year. Well, it, two years ago, it was 51. But then last year, there was a bit of an uptick. Um, when I was writing my my thesis, we had we were already standing at 60 fatalities for the year. Mm. I think we ended the year, the year at 72. So yeah, I thought that, you know, maybe it's stuff like, I, th- I thought there must be a link between leadership and reducing fatalities. And what are those sort of qualities of leadership that we need to be able to create an environment that's safer for our workforce? And I think it's, it, it applies not only to eliminating fatalities, but also injuries and also making it safer for women. Yeah. Uh, well, it all applies to to everyone, actually. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the 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 uh, you use the words the anatomy of leaders, um, and I would imagine the anatomy of leadership applies in all aspects of business and all aspects of operations. But you you're talking about it from a safety perspective. So can you tell us a little bit more about firstly what is a safety leader, and then what you mean and what the components are in the anatomy of a safety leader. Yeah, so so when I did the the study, I interviewed a number of senior leaders in um, the company that I work for, and I went quite deep into their lived experience of having seen over the last 20 years how safety has improved and how the type of leadership has changed. Um, So... I took all of the themes that I generated from what they gave me and I constructed a a figure or a a model, which I called the anatomy of a safety leader. And there were broadly around about 11 themes that came out of my studies. And I thought to myself, what would this type of leader look like? Mm. You know, so I drew a little picture and I I looked at their eyes and ears and heart and went, how would this, this person actually act in the, in the workplace? What would they do every day Mm. to make a, to create an environment where uh, people would be safer? So there's a couple of themes that came out as a result of that. So the very first thing that um, a safety leader does is that they believe it's possible. It's, it's, they believe it's possible to live in a world where there's no more fatalities. Mm. Okay. Um, because if you don't believe that, it's going to drive your way in which you spend money. It's going to drive the way in which you act towards the workforce. If you as a leader don't believe that we can actually get there, mm. then, um, it's going to show in the way that your leadership shows up. Absolutely. In the way that you speak, in the way that you direct and guide and inspire. Yeah. And many of the, the safety leaders I spoke to said to me, they totally believe it's possible because for the vast majority of time we are already fatality free Mm. there are many days that go past in in each operation in each section there's some sections that have been fatality free forever Mm. so it's possible 
It's completely f- possible. So you have to believe that. And then you have to do everything in your power to make it happen everywhere, mm. you know. So, so they have to have that belief mindset that it's actually possible. That's a very um, powerful starting point. Yeah. So that, that's the very first thing. But at the same time, while you believe that it's possible, you also have to believe, hold the two thoughts in your mind at the same time. You have to believe it's possible, but at the same time, you have to believe that you're not there yet. Mm. So you have to have this complete sense of we can get there, but we are definitely not there yet, and it can still happen at any time. Mm. So that's the whole thing around never becoming complacent. Yeah. There's this whole concept that the guys in my organization talk about, which is called a constant unease mm-hmm. um, or a readiness to respond. So you have to believe that you can get there, but then you have to act in such a way that you aren't there. Mm. Um, and that that's really, really important. You have to believe that we haven't achieved zero fatalities yet. Um, and then act in that way as well. Then there's a, and that sort of goes hand in hand with the vigilance, you know, so being on your toes the whole time with the readiness to respond, um, you have to have a certain amount of restlessness is what they call mm. it, um, that, that you completely observing around you what's happening. And that's not just from a leadership perspective, you know, it's everybody in the operation has to have this constant restlessness that anything can go wrong at any time. And be looking out for risks for themselves and for everybody around them. Well, and and I think you say it in your research that everybody can be a safety leader. Yeah, I mean, there's when I looked at the the literature and I looked at what came out of my studies, there were sort of two types of leaderships that emerged. It was sort of a top down leadership, which is imposed upon you because you've got the name leader or mm. manager or head of. And in the mining industry, there's also a lot of legal implication mm. for you to, if, you, if you're working in an operation. So there is that title of a safety leader. So there's certain things that you need to do as a person placed in a leadership position yeah. that you need to act against. But at the same time, there's also a bottom-up type leadership where every single person must take accountability for their own safety mm-hmm. and f- also for the team around them. So so there is sort of so, so that bottom bottom up in the moment leadership is practice mm. um type safety leadership but there's also a top down um in a position of responsibility and so I must I must act in a specific way and create an environment where where people can be safe. Yeah. And so safety can't happen without both of those being in play. Yeah, I'm, and I mean you know, if you look at fatality specifically, there's a specific way in which events line up for a fatality to happen. And it's normally a number of systems that fail at the same time. So you have to constantly be aware of what's happening around you. Mm. And that's that chronic unease and restlessness. So mm. always looking at, they call it the Swiss cheese model. You know, all the situations line up that if that fatality can, can occur. Yeah. If you in in a situation where you're working with a number of people, you have to basically look out the whole time and be and be restless. Okay. Yeah. So, um, just building on what we said earlier around listening and conversation, one of the major themes that came out for this um, safety leader or the anatomy of a safety leader was that you have to be very skillful at having conversations with your fellow workers, mm. you know, and asking the right questions, and then truly listening to what they're telling you. Uh, not just listening to respond, but truly listening to what they're telling you and then um, following up afterwards. So actually that must lead to action. Um, and the Sounds only thing, so easy, but it's not easy at all, is it? No, it's not easy. And there, I had a number of, of really interesting stories from the people that I interviewed around following up and what it means to people if you actually do that. Mm. And the only way that you can actually truly get to a point where you can create a safe environment is 
through listening to people caring about them, but then using their eyes and ears as an early detection mechanism. Yeah. You know, they, they're out there, they're working, they're mm. picking stuff up, they're walking past stuff that might be unsafe. And it's a really powerful way of getting some sort of early warning around where, if, where the next fatality might occur. And you, you have to turn that into, into action and into tangible things that protects everybody. Well, it becomes a cycle, right? If if you're asking people to be the eyes and ears and you listen to them and you take action and you give them feedback, it's far more likely that people are going to continue to be the eyes and ears. Yeah, yeah. So the sort of next theme that I, that I came up with is we, we did a lot of work around leadership as practice, which is in the moment, what do I say, what do I do to create a future world? that is going to be better for mm-hmm. everybody to work in. And leadership as practice is constantly being attuned to everybody that you're working with and you sort of playing together like you're playing in an orchestra. You're all working together towards um, a common goal. Mm-hmm. And leadership as practice is everybody in the team can speak up. They can contribute to creating something um, in the workplace. And I thought it's, it's similar for safety. You know, you can be working together towards, you know, fixing a specific vessel or you can be working together towards opening up a new development end mm. and you can be working in harmony. But at the same time, you need to be attuned to everybody around you um, in terms of safety. And if anything changes, you need to notice it. Um, and everybody needs to be looking around at what, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. So that concept for me was not just leadership as practice, but safety leadership as mm. practice. I think safety leadership as practice is not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Some of the guys that I, that I interviewed, they technical people who have moved through the ranks and a lot of them had to learn how to do safety leadership. You know, so it's something that you have to practice on a daily basis. You have to be comfortable with having a difficult conversation with somebody if they, if they're not acting safely. You have to be, or the team needs to be comfortable enough with each other to be able to raise specific issues. Well, absolutely. I mean, the competencies of leading and managing are completely different to the competencies of being technically good at what you do. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, as you're talking, it's, reminding me that leadership is not something that's easy. It's not something that you just suddenly know how to do the moment you're given the the title. Yeah. Another thing that came up quite often was around visibility, you mm. know, being visible in the operation. Um, you don't do leadership by sitting behind your desk. Mm. You have to walk around, be visible. If you're in a leadership position, mm. then it's really important to spend a lot of time in the operation, really understand what's happening. And when you do have interactions with people to be really authentic about it, um, so that people really believe that you care about them and then also acting consistently in the same way, mm. you know, you shouldn't be one day talking about safety and the next day we're all talking about production and the next day we're talking about, um, you know, we have to make money. Um, it's, it's important that from a safety perspective that leaders are really consistent mm. with their messaging mm. every day. We're always consistent about what we're saying. The message about safety is clear and it's consistent and it's, it's the same from day to day. So yes. that was something that came up quite often as well. So production doesn't trump safety. Yeah. 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 That's definitely, the, definitely the case. And it's, for me, it's not really disconnected. I think it's the same thing. You know, if you work safely and if you work productively, it's the same thing. It's just about planning the work properly so that you do it safely. So mm. it's safe production. It's one, it's one concept. It's not two s- separate activities or separate, separate actions. Yeah. And it's, and, but conversation is what leads to that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And then 
if the leader can do that, if they can be visible, authentic, consistent, what it often leads to then is that there's a sense of ownership in the operation. Each and every person in the operation will then own their own safety. Mm. Looking after each other, they'll own their own safety. And they'll, if they truly believe that their leaders care about them, they can care about themselves as well. You know, so there's this whole sense of ownership that came out as well. That was one of the very strong themes. It's an interesting point there around if you believe that your leaders care, you can care about yourself too. What stops people from caring about themselves irrespective of whether their leaders care? Um, I don't really know the answer to that question, but if I had to try, it would be, you know, if you're constantly hearing a message that production is most important, you know, we have to produce, 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 and 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 it's linked to your bonus, for mm. instance, okay, then you're going to stop actually caring about yourself and just be chasing that bonus the mm. whole time. Or we'll take more risks. And take more risks. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's uh, important that we model the correct behavior at all levels um, mm. in the organization. Another important concept is that we have to stop blaming people and actually listening to them. So you have to move from an environment of blame to psychological safety. So if somebody comes to you and tells you, you have to be, one of the things I heard quite often was we have to be ready for bad news. Mm. Um, so if somebody tells you bad news, you know, there's no thing, there's no such thing as bad news. It's either early news or late news. Okay? Yeah. So if they come to you and they tell you that there's something wrong. There's an alarm going off. There's an area that they don't like working in the operation. Mm. Okay. You shouldn't blame them and go, yo, it's your fault that you didn't fix it or why are you telling me this now? You're just upsetting my day. Um, it's around then going, okay, and I'm here, I hear you and creating that mm. environment of psychological safety where you can actually do something about it. So you, you create that trust that people can come to you and that if they do tell you some bad news, you're going to do something mm. about it. Well, and rewarding yeah. people for sharing the bad news early. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, when we fear sharing bad news, we withhold it. When we're encouraged and rewarded for it, it changes the conversation completely. Yeah. So, I mean, that was quite a big thing. It was around um, moving away from a blame culture. Mm. And because that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help us to get better. Mm. So, so that's quite important. Another function of a, of a safety leader is, um, so there's a lot of sort of human factors that I've went mm. through now as well. But they also, at the same time, have to make sure that the safety systems that are put into place at a specific environment or a specific operation are actually working. Mm. You know, so if you do raise something in the safety space or in preventing fatalities, the systems need to support it. Yeah. You know, you can't have a broken system. So that's quite important that that underlying system is working. And then, sort of, the last thing that I that I thought about in my studies was. In South Africa, we have this whole perception that we are a very risk-taking culture. Mm -hmm. You know that we, if you if you just drive on the road and you see people speeding along, even to the mining operation, they're mm. speeding to get there. Or we very tolerance, uh, risk tolerance. Mm. You know, so I thought, does that, you know, does that play a role in maybe the risk-taking behavior at our operations as well in the South African mining industry? And the people that I interviewed were from across the world. There were people from Canada and Australia and they didn't, they told me it's not, it's not different. In, in one of the operations that one of the guys worked in in Alaska, he said the guys would go away for the whole weekend shooting moose and, um, riding their skidoos and coming back to the operation and then saying, you know, now you want me to be safe. You know, mm. I've been, I've been fighting bears the whole weekend and now you want me to be safe. <laughs> so it's not different. Um, That's interesting. 
But what was interesting is one of the GMs said to me, you know, his job is to create a safe haven at the mining operation, you know, at the plant that he was running so that they, they can be shielded from what's going on outside, that, that they know that as soon as they walk through the gates, this is a safe environment, mm. okay? This is a, a island. One of our lecturers called it an island of sanity, mm. you know? So as soon as you walk into the operation, this is a place where you know I'm going to be safe I'm going to be looked after. My colleagues are going to look after me. So it's sort of the role of um, a leader in one of these operations to create these islands of sanity in their operations where people are enabled to be safe. And so I think that's quite – and it's no different to any other operation in the world. I thought South Africa might be a special case, but it's mm. not really. Um, it's everywhere. Well, that's kind of good and also scary to hear, I guess. I mean, everything that you're talking about sounds to me like these are the basics for being a leader, no matter what. Listening, caring about your people, communicating, taking action on what people say, rewarding the bad news first, having consequences, kind of implementing the systems. Is there anything here that is different, kind of that's specific to being a safety leader that, that one wouldn't expect from a well kind of a high EQ leader. If you think about the mining industry, you don't have in your mind, if you think about a, a shift bus or a frontline manager or an HOD at a specific, the mining manager or the production manager, you don't have in your mind somebody who's a high EQ person. Do you? Okay. It's not, it's, it's not the first, it's, it's not the first image that springs to your mind. You know, this is a person who has got a huge amount of emotional connection. You yeah. Know, I you guess don't... the image that comes to mind is someone who's fairly hardened. They work in a tough environment. They've sometimes got to bark at people to get things done and they're kind of down in the depths of kind yeah. of hard mechanical kind of dirty sometimes dangerous work yeah so the first image that springs to mind is not of somebody who is showing all of these caring um, qualities okay and i think in the mining industry as well making a mistake has got a huge impact you know if you make a specific impact the consequences are very high yes you know as if you don't as a leader really you know look after your workforce the consequences can be really high you can lose you can it's a it's a dangerous in- industry to work in and that's Definitely. the and that's the the perception that you have around it okay but so it doesn't mean that caring is soft no i mean caring is never soft yeah not really in fact yeah, if you, caring if really can be very it. hard yeah if you implement caring properly you're implementing kind of consequences and deep level of feedback in a very direct way. It's not kind of lots of hugs and kind of and soft mushy stuff. It's caring can be very hard. Yeah, no, it is. Um, so so yeah, you're right. The things that came out as a result of the study is not something. It's something that you would think everybody should be doing, mm. but. Like I said, the consequences are much higher if you don't get it right mm. um, in in the mining industry. And there's a couple of things that are slightly different. You know, the whole vigilancy and restlessness and constant unease. I think that's something that needs to come up in any high-risk industry. You constantly have to have that sense of that something might go wrong. Mm. So that might be slightly different. I think you don't necessarily need that if you're working in the finance in- sector, you know. Um, but... um. Yeah, so that's for me is, is sort of different. Um, and then there's also specific legal 
things that, that, that our leaders need to do. They have legal responsibility. Mm. So I think that, that there's actually people can be held accountable. They can be, go to jail yeah. if they are seen to have contributed to a situation where people lose their lives. They can go to jail. So there's quite a high consequence. Yeah, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the quote from Brene Brown comes to mind for me. It's, I mean, she says something along the lines of being clear is kind. To be kind is to be clear. And, and that's really what comes to mind for me here. It's not often all that easy to be clear and to be direct and to be accountable, but it's the greatest kindness because then everybody knows where they stand, what to expect, how to be, how to show up, how to act. And when we're not clear on things, that's when we get into trouble. Yeah, in leadership as practice, there's a whole concept of, you know, knowing exactly what your role is and working together to a, a common goal. Mm. And you can do that. Um, but at the same time, you have to also have this readiness to respond. So if you are in an emergency situation, then everybody needs to know what, know what their mm. roles are in that situation. Mm. If something does go wrong, you need to know exactly what you need to do. Yeah. Um, so there's that sort of balance between listening to one another and being supportive and everybody's got a voice. But at the same time, if we're in an emergency situation, then there's very clear yeah, roles act. and accountabilities. Yeah. Act and everybody knows what they need to yeah. do. Yeah. So it leads to my favorite question. So what? Okay. And, and I mean, connecting your point around act, leaders need to listen and then take action. I guess my so what question is, so you've done all of this research. How are you and how can you and how can others apply this in their world of work? Yeah, so so when I presented this work to some of our executives towards the end of uh, last year, they were very excited about the things that came out and they went, how can we convert this into training? Mm. How can we convert this into courses that people can do so they can practice? So not only training, but also on the job coaching mm. and training. So one of the things that we can do is we can educate our, our safety leaders um, and tailor our, our training courses to more of an EQ approach, I would think. And also how to have a safety conversation, mm. you know, so how to have a meaningful, because these are difficult conversations. Yes. And I think a lot of people aren't well-versed in how to have a difficult conversation, mm. um, specifically around safety. So we have to educate our leaders and train them how to have an impactful safety conversation. So one of the themes that sort of came out or, or what I heard from people was how do we create a sense of urgency? So how do we get people to act in the same way that they would act after a fatality has occurred mm. without us having to have the fatality, mm. you know. So once a fatality happens, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff springs into place. You know? Sure. Um, there's a lot of, um, decrees that go out. This shall not, will no longer happen, that sort of thing. But how do we make sure that we can maintain that sense of restlessness without having to have the fatality? Yeah. How do yeah. we simulate, almost simulate having a fatality without having a fatality and create that sort of sense of, of, of urgency? So I think we have to think about how do we do that? Then we have to keep it fresh. You know, um, I think a lot of work around safety can become stale very, very quickly. You know, people sort of just go through the checklists. Yeah. They, they see it as a tick box exercise. So how do we keep our safety campaigns fresh and innovative so that we can create awareness around that we care about each other and that we all, we want everybody to go, to go home safely at the end of the day. So we have to think about how do we keep reinvigorating that safety message. So we have to keep it fresh. Yeah. And, and, and kind of avoiding situational blindness. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So how do we train people the whole time? And you can actually do that. There's a couple of courses which are actually linked to art around how to recognize risks. Yeah. You know, so we have to constantly think about how do we train our people to recognize risk happening around them. And then um, sort of the last thing that came out of it is how do we create that sense of fluency? They're called fluency where in the moment you're always doing the right thing. Mm. And it almost has to become a second nature. The whole thing around um, through coaching and through practicing your your behavior in a specific situation that you know exactly what to do. Mm. So if you're in a da- working in a dangerous environment, each person knows what they need to do. They need to recognize if a risk is happening and then act in a way that everybody understands we are avoiding a risk now at this mm. point in time. Mm. And it should be completely natural and fluent. Mm. So that's creating that sense of fluency. Yeah, and, and not looking to... at your checklist and going, oh, this is a risk. What do I do now? Yeah. Constantly, actually yeah. knowing exactly how to act. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just constantly being aware of what's happening around you and then acting appropriately for the various levels of risk. Petra, it sounds like there's a huge amount of valuable work here, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who would like to read your thesis or the content as a series of papers. Are you going to be making it available, sharing it in kind of um, shorter publications? So the first step in making it more accessible was to talk about it today mm. in the in the podcast um, because it's a shorter form and just a taster for what's inside of it. There's actually a lot, lot more content in the actual thesis. The thesis was approved a couple of weeks ago, so it will be available through the University of Cape Town's um, library, so you'll be able to find it there. I am planning on breaking it down into a couple of papers, so to publish those, and then I'll probably be giving a couple of talks around it as well, starting with um, a Women in Leadership conference that I'm speaking at next week. And I'm going to be applying some of the knowledge that I got from this paper to how do we make it safer for women working in the mining industry Mm. where they can not only survive but thrive. Um, So I'll be using some of these learnings to to adapt that to that talk. So, yeah, I've got a a number of things that I'll be doing over the next couple of months to promote the paper or not promote it but um, just make the information available. Great. And you're going to be joining us on a Women in Mining panel during mining in Darba at Weber Wenzel's breakfast. So looking forward to hearing more about your research and the application of it then. Petra, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation and looking forward to seeing how this translates into application over time. Thanks, Bryony. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.